Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. We're coming to you a little bit late in this newsy week. As some of you saw on Twitter, Ken has been in court doing his day job this week. But Ken, I, I really want to thank you for, for taking some time with me and for our listeners uh, in, in your busy week to address the, the very busy week in the news that we cover here in this podcast. Well, I'm happy to do it, Josh. And, you know, whether it's being abused by you or being abused by a judge and opposing counsel, it's all part of the job. <laughs> Pretty familiar either way, right? So the news I want to start with this week, former President Trump has an additional lawyer uh, who's come on in recent weeks onto his team that is uh, addressing this criminal investigation into him. Uh, The guy's name is Chris Kies. Uh, He's a prominent Florida attorney, and the Wall Street Journal reports that he's obtained a $3 million fee deposit from the former president to cover the fees that he will charge in this representation. And so one thing that we, we've talked about on this show and also back on all the president's lawyers is the importance of ensuring that you're going to get paid uh, if you're somebody's attorney, uh, which is a problem always and especially a problem if your client is Donald Trump. That's a, a pretty remarkable thing to get $3 million up front to address the fact that the representation is going to be expensive and a lot of people don't want it because they're concerned they won't get paid. Well, I mean, $3 million is a lot of money, but not necessarily a lot of money in the context of long-term representation of somebody who could be indicted. So representing Trump with all the things going on, as we'll talk about in a while, is very much high-impact activity. It could be pretty much around the clock for some time. And uh, $3 million may be what it takes. What Mr. Kyes is doing here is prudent. I mean, Trump has a long history of stiffing people, including lawyers. And, you know, this is why you get your money up front. There was a a time when you could go into court and ask for a continuance for a first appearance on the grounds that, Your Honor, Mr. Green hasn't shown up yet, uh, which was the polite (laughs) way to tell the judge that you didn't have a fee deposit yet. That's what he's doing here. And it's just good business. And so what do you think the total bill for a representation like this could be? I mean, I guess we don't know. There are several matters over which the former president could be charged. We don't know whether any of them will go to trial, whether several of them would go to trial. But I assume we're, we're still we're talking about a number that's conceivably considerably larger than three million in the, the largest versions of this case, right? Sure. I mean, just continuing to represent him in connection with all the different investigations could rack up a three million dollar bill over the course of months or year. But if he's indicted, then you're really talking about a lot of intensive work where that may not last that long. I don't know what Mr. Kaiser's hourly rate is, but I would speculate it's probably between $1,000 and $1,500 an hour. And then tell me about Chris Kyes. Who is he? Is he a good choice for this role? I mean, one thing the journal says is that he's been trying to turn the temperature down a little bit, saying, you know, that uh, we need to we need to be a little bit less heated with each other on both sides in this uh, in this case, uh, the which uh, is, is a somewhat different tone than you've seen from some of the president's other lawyers. Well, he's a, he's a very well qualified litigator and appellate lawyer experience both in trial courts and appellate courts. He's argued successfully before the Supreme Court and uh, participated in briefs before the Supreme Court uh, many times. So he he definitely seems to have the skill set for the issues that Trump's facing that involve complex 
uh, legal analysis and legal advocacy. He doesn't appear to have a lot of criminal experience, but a lot of what Trump is doing right now isn't so much trial work uh, as it is, uh, you know, the motion papers, the the complex legal arguments, the sort of things that may go to appellate courts uh, or the Supreme Court. How does it work when you have a team representation like this, where you have multiple attorneys who are not at the same firm, who do not necessarily work together on other cases? Is someone in charge? Like what happens if the attorneys disagree with each other? Badly, Josh, is the answer. It works badly. <laughs> uh, unless you have a clear hierarchy or a group of lawyers who are get along unusually well and kind of understand their respective roles, or unless you have a very sensible client who's able to synthesize the advice and call the shots and say who's going to do what, uh, it's very easy for there to be factions and waste of time and money and, and chaos. So it's, it's a tough thing to do, particularly because Trump usually has at least one complete lunatic on his team, uh, you know, whether it's a Sidney Powell or a, or a Mike Lindell or a Rudy Giuliani or whoever it is. And, you know, a chaos agent like that on the team uh, who's willing to kind of tempt uh, former President Trump into some of his worst instincts in terms of things he tries to do can make that representation much harder. Another thing the Wall Street Journal reports is that the fee deposit, the $3 million, has been paid out of the Save America Political Action Committee. That's this fundraising vehicle that that the former president has while he is theoretically not a candidate for office. Can he do that? I mean, I know we've talked previously about the, the president has, has paid other legal fees out of political committees. And I guess the idea is that because the legal matter arises out of his political activity— uh, that that is a legitimate political expense. But does that apply here? Because, I mean, this taking the documents with you, I don't know how that's in furtherance. I mean, I, I guess it depends on what's in the documents. But then the other thing is that this is not a campaign committee. This is a political action committee uh, that, you know, would ordinarily it would give money to political candidates or it would engage in independent expenditures where it could not coordinate with a political candidate. So it's, it strikes me as even as an even tougher sell, the idea that you can pay it out of a PAC rather than paying it out of a campaign committee. Yeah, it's not clear to me what his theory is, and I don't think we should assume that he has a theory or that they have a, uh, you know, a comprehensive view on why this is permissible. And as I think we'll talk about in a little while, there's an indication that now that there is a federal grand jury investigation that encompasses his use of donations. So we don't know enough really to say, but I think it's something that uh, the Federal Election Commission is likely to be interested in and that bears close watching. Well, I mean, the, one of the themes with the investigation into Trump's fundraising activity is that the Federal Election Commission is really feckless right now, that it's it has it's an evenly divided partisan board and they deadlock on on most important things. And so, I mean, if there's risk there, it's probably going to come out of DOJ rather than coming out of the FEC itself. Um, but I assume Chris Kyes must have gotten comfortable with that, right? If you take a $3 million fee out of a political committee, um, and this is your strategy to ensure you get paid. I assume you're pretty. You, you have to have established pretty good confidence that it's not going to be determined later that the committee was not, in fact, allowed to pay you. Yes, he's smart, so he must have a fact and law based level of comfort that he's going to keep that money. However, Josh, the places where money can get clawed back are limited. So it's common uh, lawyers who get paid by cartels. 
uh, lawyers who get paid by the proceeds of Ponzi schemes, things like that. Those are the people (laughs) who have the worry of money getting clawed back. It's less likely when it's a a violation of even criminal law by the politician who's improperly using campaign or other contributions. Generally, that's not something that gets clawed back. There have also been a whole bunch of additional subpoenas and search warrants uh, that have been executed in recent days, uh, about 40 of them, according to The New York Times. And the headline of The Times story describes this as being part of the DOJ's investigation into January 6th. But I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because the, the things that they're looking at are matters related to the aftermath of the election and the former president's efforts to overturn the result of the election. But a lot of that has to do with activity that occurred before January 6th and that wasn't really directly related to the riot, which was these efforts to put forward uh, fake elector slates in various states and have people hold themselves out as the duly elected members of the Electoral College from Georgia or wherever. What do you make of the increasingly broad net here that, that seems to suggest they're looking at a few things? They're looking at people who were involved in putting together the rally that uh, that sort of led up to the riot on January 6th. They're looking at people who were involved in the elector slates. And then, as you note, they're also looking at uh, some questions related to campaign fundraising, including fundraising where the, the president purported to be raising money to fight back against election fraud. What do we know about Uh, what the investigation looks like based on these subpoenas and search warrants? Well, first of all, and uh, this is the answer that uh, I, in my capacity of uh, Kenny Raincloud, have to give to uh, (laughs) dash everybody's hopes, it's not a sign of an end stage investigation. A big scattershot group of subpoenas like this doesn't mean that on these particular investigations, anyone's getting indicted uh, anytime soon. This is more of a, a midterm type investigation, uh, really kind of hitting its stride, but not coming to the end yet. As you said, it appears that they're looking at a number of subjects, and we can put this together from the subpoenas that have happened before, and then the kind of distinct waves in the last few weeks. You do have in the past a distinct interest in who was involved in getting the people to D.C. who wound up storming the Capitol. And you see that in things like this grand jury subpoenas to figures like Ali Alexander, people like that. We've also got a wave of things that are pretty clearly related to putting together these slates of supposed alternate electors uh, on this theory that a state could simply reject the results of the election and come up with their own slate. And as you said, we've got this whole thing uh, going to fundraising. And ABC reported on this, and it appears to be based in some part on how he's using the stop the steal narrative to raise money through PACs. Why would that be a crime? Well, some people have been arguing that fundamental misrepresentations are being made uh, to get people to donate money. So We've said for a while how generally Department of Justice is very reluctant 
to get into policing the type of political speech that's involved in soliciting donations, in, in policing whether it's true or not, because that's pretty much core political speech. But some of these subpoenas and the circumstances suggest they may be looking into whether misrepresentations are being made about how money is going to be used or what it's going to be raised for. But that's a certain amount of speculation based on what we have. So to be clear, the, the misrepresentation that could be a crime, it, it would not be that misrepresenting the nature of the election itself would not be the crime. It's not a matter of that, like, you know, you said the election was stolen when it wasn't. It's that you said you were going to use this money for various purposes related to trying to unsteal the election, and then in fact you spent it on something else? Right. So that would be one theory, a kind of like the uh, build the wall prosecution like we saw with Steve Bannon uh, first in the federal case where he was pardoned and now more recently in the New York case, uh, state case where he's been indicted and perp walked. It's possible that they would go as far as to say, you're making misrepresentations about what happened in the election that you knew to be false. I think that would be super aggressive in terms of policing political speech. And I kind of doubt that the Department of Justice would go that far. It's an irritation for professional campaign staffers, especially on the Republican side, although there's some of it on the Democratic side, too, where you have these so-called scam packs where, you know, they, they go to people and they say, you know, look how terrible Biden is or look how terrible Hillary is and send me money. And, I'll, and then, you know, you mostly use the money to pay consultants and you don't actually do political work. And it's it's really hard to prosecute those cases. You have to be like really doing almost nothing that is actually related to your purported political purpose to actually be, you know, criminally committing fraud when you do that sort of thing. And that's part of why there's a lot of it. And so here, I mean, Trump has not sent that much money out to other candidates, but like they're still holding on to a lot of the money in the pack. And so it seems like, you know, the wouldn't it be premature to prosecute over that because they could spend the money later for a relevant purpose? And then even arguably, if you know, if you've spun people up about the the actions around the 2020 election and how poorly and unfairly Donald Trump was treated there, and then you use the money to pay his legal fees, arguably that is kind of squarely within the purpose of what you what you told the donors you were going to do. I mean, I imagine most of those donors would say that it was a, a just and appropriate use of their money to pay Trump's legal fees because they think he's being railroaded by the DOJ. I agree. I think it's a very hard case, and that's why I think we don't know everything that we need to know. There may be communications that spell out why what is being said about the PACs or how the money is going to be used is fraudulent. There may be something else, but there's something there because they wouldn't be spending all these resources unless they had some sort of theory. For whatever you say about Department of Justice's investigations against Trump, they haven't you know, bitten on every lunatic theory that comes across. Uh, and particularly when they're already so busy on other stuff, it suggests there's some things we, we don't know about. So this is a substantial expenditure of resources, not just all these grand jury subpoenas. And that's going to be a huge amount of information uh, to collate and a lot of lawyers to have to deal with. But they're also doing actual more search warrants for phones. Uh, in fact, we learned uh, that uh, Mike Lindell of uh, Pillow and... Uh, ongoing emotional crisis fame uh, was uh, <laughs> confronted apparently in the drive through of Hardee's <laughs> and questioned or, or it's not clear to what extent was questioning or, or just Mike yelling and eventually given a, a search warrant for his phone. How would they end up tracking him down at Hardee's? 
Like, did they, were they tailing him? If you're the FBI and you're going to like, to seize somebody's phone that you have a warrant for, usually like you find them at home or at their office, or I guess at the pillow factory, if you're Mike Lindell, how, how would it come to pass that they would be outside a fast food restaurant? Oh, Josh, you have no idea how seriously these people take themselves. And that (laughs) absolutely includes having a huge surveillance team watching where they're going so you can spring on them at the optimal moment. And a lot of the time, the goal of, of walking up to somebody and confronting them and asking them questions is to put them off balance and do it in a place where they may not be at their maximum comfort level. So like Hardy. this is not unusual. Exactly. Uh, so from Lindell's comments, it sure sounds like he he mouthed off extensively to the FBI. And I just feel like now at this point, I need to make it clear that my my advice to shut up and not talk to the FBI, this does apply to the drive-thru. <laughs> it absolutely applies to drive-throughs, drive-ins, all other driving venues, biscuit-related or not. There is no exception. Don't <laughs> talk to the FBI. Because to quote Joe Pesci, they will fuck you at the drive-thru. <laughs> so... They seized Mike Lindell's phone. So first of all, if they take your phone, what, do they make a copy of it and give the phone back to you? Like, it would be really inconvenient to not have your phone. Eventually, they do. But like, how long does that take? Well, it depends in part on whether they can get into it. And remember that when uh, we've been doing with John Eastman's phone, what they did was they got the warrant to seize it, and they got the separate warrant to search it, and there was a process for attorney-client privilege review and all that type of thing. So honestly, I, I think usually they could give it back pretty quickly. Uh, although the the labs where the FBI and the other federal agencies do the copying of these things tend to be very backed up. So I have a guy who was arrested in his phone and laptop taken in uh, June, and we haven't gotten it yet. So that's not unusual. Uh, so yeah, you should be able to get the thing back once they have the image of it. You, you mentioned uh, privilege review uh, is going to have to be conducted here. Does each of these phones get its own taint team? <laughs> Yes, the uh, Lindell Taint Team, which I'm sure will be one of the most prestigious opportunities in the United States Department of Justice. Uh, there will probably be one. Pillowy since, Taint. Since Lindell is not himself a lawyer, it will probably be uh, easier, easier than the Eastman situation. But yes. likely they will do something to screen out his conversations with his lawyers, although not his conversations with God, uh, various dogs, and anyone else that he's uh, currently in a conversation with. I mean, someone with Mike Lindell, there could be a question of like, who's his lawyer, right? He has all of these associates who are attorneys, who I'm sure he does not have a, uh, a an actual like retainer relationship with. Could he assert that his conversations with Sidney Powell are privileged? He might. But Mike Lindell is very mad about this drive-through encounter. I'm sure. Uh, he was not satis- he was not satisfied. And as one does, uh, he apparently has retained uh, Alan Dershowitz threatening to bring some sort of lawsuit against the United States Department of Justice and the FBI. Has Alan Dershowitz confirmed that he's been retained by Mike Lindell? Or we just, Mike Lindell says that he's retained Alan Dershowitz. Mike Lindell made that claim. Alan Dershowitz has identified what the main problem is with all these people getting good legal advice and, and, and what is at the center of it. Would you like to know what is at the center of the issue, Josh? What is at the center of the issue, Ken? Alan Dershowitz. So you see, Alan explains that because he's treated so badly, excluded from the salons of Martha's Vineyard Society, that all the other lawyers are now 
afraid to get involved to uh, represent the Trumps and Mike Lindell's of the world. Mm. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that's uh, that that's true. It's that's a tragedy. Uh, yeah. So I'd, I'd note there, it's not it's not just him. He, he's not saying that Alan Dershowitz is representing him in the criminal matter, which is what what he really needs a lawyer for right now. Is that you know he might be a subject or a target of this investigation. He could get indicted. He's saying that he's he's hired Alan Dershowitz to sue the Department of Justice for their mistreatment of him. I would note that we know that there's at least one relationship between Dershowitz and Lindell, which is that Lindell is one of the defendants uh, in the Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit uh, against various people who spread lies about Dominion having rigged the 2020 election. Uh, and Dershowitz has been has said that he is advising Mike Lindell on First Amendment issues in that case. And uh, asked about this by CNBC back in March, Dershowitz said, my role is extremely limited. He's not representing either Lindell or MyPillow. Uh, and CNBC said that uh, ran counter to the impression given by Lindell, who had called Dershowitz part of the team a day earlier. So I'm, I would just take with a grain of salt Mike Lindell's claims about the extent of his uh, of, of his client relationship with Alan Dershowitz in any matter. Well, sure. <laughs> I mean, there are things that are too stupid even for Alan Dershowitz to do. It's true. Uh, Mike Lindell needs a lot of professional assistance. And quite frankly, it's difficult to prioritize some of it. But <laughs> I think you're right that we shouldn't assume that just because he says he's hired Dershowitz to sue the FBI, that 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 has actually happened. That's all for this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. The other big Trump news, obviously, was Judge Eileen Cannon issuing more orders uh, in the case brought by Donald Trump, uh, who was suing over the search of his home and club in Florida. Judge Cannon declined to modify her prior orders to stay any of them or to allow the government to continue working with approximately 100 marked classified documents, which was the government's ask. They said, go ahead, have the special master look at the rest of this, but let us have these 100 important documents that are classified. And so that's putting the government in a very difficult position. They are likely going to need to work in the appeals courts there. Uh, and she's appointed a special master, a well-respected senior federal judge uh, who seems well qualified for this, but then also given him pretty ambiguous instructions about what he's actually supposed to do. So I had a, a, spent another approximately 20 minutes discussing with Ken the implications of that order, the strangeness of that order. Judge Cannon's orders sort of seem to keep getting less and less defensible as we go on here. And so we talk about basically like what she could possibly be thinking and uh, what the government can do in a position where this judge is being so troublesome for them. So if you would like to hear that, please go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can become a paying subscriber for $6 a month or $60 a year, and that will give you every single full episode of Serious Trouble directly uh, in your podcast player uh, or in the uh, Substack player or in your email inbox as you prefer. You'll be able to join the comments and uh, the smart discussion threads that we have on our website at SeriousTrouble.show, and you can support this community uh, and make it possible for us to produce this podcast for you. So I strongly encourage you to do that. But even if you don't, uh, we will be back in coming weeks with more Serious Trouble. Thank you.